Viewing life from a hearse, it could be worse. Laugh, think, and cry with the country undertaker. Today I've got a very special guest with me. Uh, her name is Cassandra McKinney. She lives now in Jackson, Tennessee, or near Jackson, Tennessee. Uh, but before I introduce her, she is on the line with us. But before I introduce her, I'm going to just give you a little background of, of who she is and the impact she had on me when I met her a little over 11 years ago. I was visiting the beautiful town of Keene, New Hampshire, as part of my job. If you've never been there, I highly suggest getting it on your bucket list. Uh, it's a beautiful place of about 25,000 residents located on the western side of New Hampshire. I don't think I've ever visited a town where I was more impressed. The town is quaint. The people are nice. They quickly open their arms to southern talking guys like me. I noticed that from the reception at the hotel. I noticed it at the local restaurant where I had breakfast. I noticed it from the guy who worked for the city. I stopped on the street to ask a few questions about his incredible town. I also noticed it at the local funeral home I visited. If you walk in a place in New England and you are met at the door by a gal from Jackson, Tennessee, she pretty much has your undivided attention if you're from Georgia. As you might imagine, my first question was, how in the world did a girl from Tennessee end up living and working in New Hampshire? She began telling me her story. She graduated from Mortuary College in Nashville and was having a difficult time finding a job. She had put her resume out, was frustrated that nobody would hire her. Although she graduated at the top of her class, she essentially gave up. She decided she had made a huge mis mistake thinking she could enter the funeral profession. She sadly began to look for other ways to make a living. Out of the clear blue, Cassandra got a call from Bob DeLuzio in Keene, New Hampshire. He had received her resume and a strong recommendation from a friend in the industry over the telephone. Bob flew Cassandra to New Hampshire to meet her and for her to meet them. There was one small item that Bob's friend had not mentioned, and Cassandra never mentioned it to me when she was telling me her story. Cassandra is blind. Bob's first response was a feeling of devastation. He had pretty much offered a job to someone to work as a funeral director and embalmer in his small town funeral home who was blind. What in the world should he do? Well, Bob proved my point about the special people in Keene, New Hampshire. He and his wife, Linda, hired her, and they took her under their wing. The blind girl from the little town between Nashville and Memphis became not only their employee, but became like one of their children. Cassandra has done well. In fact, she has done really well. She can do anything any other licensed person in the industry can do except drive, but licensed drivers are everywhere. Bob and Linda invested their lives in her and the investment has paid off. The dividends are now coming in. Cassandra is the president of the New Hampshire State Blind Association, or she was then. She has created relationships with people uh, Bob and Linda could have never reached. Bob and Linda and their staff welcomed her and trained her. 
The special community of Keene welcomed her with open arms. The local ambulance service of some 35 employees really welcomed her. She cooks Thanksgiving dinner for them every year. She took me on a tour of the facility, walked in every room, pointed out things in the room and gave me a lesson in the history of this funeral home. The most interesting and impressive part to me was she never mentioned she was blind, not one time. She simply does not feel sorry for herself. Cassandra has chosen not to use her blindness as an excuse. I was complaining for not getting enough sleep that night. By the way, what's your excuse? So Cassandra, thank you so much for joining me on here. Can you hear me? Are you on? I hope so. I am. Thank you so much uh, for, for being here. And I, I think by what I just uh, said that people are going to be very interested in your story and what an amazing story. Uh, tell me, let's start. You're a Tennessee gal. Tell me what, how you got an interest in getting in the funeral business. Well, I, I always wanted to have a job that was not just a job that it was, it was a passion. It was something that when you finished your work every day, you, you knew that you had made a difference in the world and I get to do that every single day. I get to, to help people in one of the most difficult challenges that they go through, see some some good <clears throat> and have an opportunity to say goodbye to someone that they love. Well, I you get to help them do that. You, you do as good a job as that as anybody I've ever met. So let's talk about you wanted to get in this business. Did, did, did you know somebody in the business? Well, I, um, I do not have any other family in the business. Um, and as a young person, I, spent a lot of time in prayer and a lot of time focusing on what God had called me to do with my life and all those paths and all the doors opened for mortuary school. Um, and I chose John A. Gupton in Nashville primarily because it was closest to me. Um, but also because it was a private institution. Um, and I knew that there I would gain, a lot more than just the mortuary college education that I would learn what it was like to be a professional. I knew their standards are really high. Right. Uh, and so I, when I started school, I really didn't know if I could do it. I was like, I okay, Lord, <laughs> this is what you want me to do. Then you, you have to walk with me. And, and so you, you didn't think you could do it. Not because, you didn't have the intellect to do it, but because of your handicap, right? I mean, you were, you were, you were behind the eight ball to begin with, but That's what right. happened if, if I'm not mistaken and you can correct me, you graduated at the top of your class. Is that right? I was, I was second in the class, second in the class. And then tell me when you got out of school and you saw your, your friends and classmates, uh, normally when somebody goes to school and just so everybody will know, you have to do an internship or apprenticeship according to the definition of what state you're in. Uh, but you saw your other classmates getting these internship jobs. And so they could get fully licensed and you were very frustrated because nobody would hire you. Is that right? That's right. 
That's right. They simply were either very concerned um, because of having someone on their staff that did, that was legally blind. They weren't sure what, um, what limitations I might have, uh, if it would be safe. I even had some people say, oh, it won't be safe for our other staff members. <laughs> and I laugh at that now. Um, but it was, it was like everywhere I went, there were roadblocks in the way. Sure. And I knew in my heart that I really wanted to do the work and I knew I could I just had to have the right opportunity. And so you were at the point of thinking, well, maybe the roadblocks, maybe I'm not going to be able to do this and tell me what happened. How, how did you, how did you get your break? So I had had a, a really bad, uh, a really bad work experience. And I came away from that experience. Um, feeling almost worse about, um, my, my future path in funeral service. And I went back to, to that prayer, you know, Lord, if you just, what you want me to do, you have to open doors. And I remembered, um, at my graduation, um, it was a gentleman who owned a corporation of funeral homes who spoke and he, um, I was introduced to him because of my position in the class, of course. And um, one of the last things he said to me was, well, if I can ever do anything to help you, just give me a call. Hmm. And uh, so it was a Monday um, right around lunchtime. And I Googled his phone number and, and I called um, the office and his secretary was at lunch and he answered the phone himself. Um, which later on I found out he never does. Um, and so that was a moment of, uh, of fate. And um, so he, he asked me in that conversation if I was willing to relocate um, from, I was living in Nashville then. And he asked me if I would be willing to relocate. And I, I said, sure. I was young. I was 22 years old. I had no family ties, no uh, nothing to hold me back. And so I was willing to relocate. And, and so he sent my resume out and the rest is history. Well, um, that, that person that, that did that is, uh, ended up to be my boss. And I think he was my, I'm positive. He was my boss when I came to, to New Hampshire, to Keene for the first time and ended up to be a great friend of mine is Steve Tidwell. And of all the people in the world for you to call and happen to get on the phone that day, there couldn't have been a better person to get on the phone. I mean, you, you, you got the right person. He's one of those people that deeply cares about other human beings. And he knew, I'm sure I haven't asked him, but he knew you graduated at the almost top of the class. Number two, the other side of that coin, I know he, he called uh, Bob Deluzio in Keene, New Hampshire, and asked him if he would consider hiring you as an apprentice or intern or whatever they call it there, right? Isn't that kind of how that happened? Yes, sir. You flew to New Hampshire. You, I'm sure you've never been to New Hampshire, right? Never been there in your life. I didn't even know where it was. <laughs> yeah, kind of like me. Yeah. Right. And so I don't even know where you had to fly into, but I'm sure you didn't fly into Keene. You had to go, you had to fly somewhere else to get there, but you walked in there out of the cold 
And there was one little surprise. Bob did not know that you were blind, right? He, he didn't, he didn't realize that when you got there. No, no, he did not. Yeah. And so obviously if, if you were in his shoes or if I was in his shoes, that had to be a shock. And he, his wife, Linda, they're wonderful. I mean, again, if you'd have picked the whole world over to find a place to go to get started in this industry, you couldn't find a better place with Bob and Linda Deluzio. I mean, they, they are some of the best people I've ever met in my life. I mean, that you couldn't have been, you couldn't have handpicked that. I mean, it, that, that, that had to be a God thing to you, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. So yes, sir. then I, I, he was, as I mentioned, he was asking Linda, what in the world are we going to do? She can't see. How do we, how do we do this? And they talked and they said, we're going to, we're going to do whatever we can to help Cassandra. And so they began, they began to impact your life in a great way, right? They did. So they tell, became... us a, tell us a little bit about that. How, how, but what did they do? Well, it was kind of like the, the old time stories of funeral service where you hear about the apprentice coming to the funeral home and, and learning everything. Um, you know, we shared, we shared meals together. I became like a part of their family. It was more than just a an employer employee relationship. I could talk to Bob about anything, and I I really learned that. Um, I moved to New Hampshire in April of two thousand and seven, um, and in in July of that same year, my mother was diagnosed with cancer. Oh wow! And. Um, I was terrified. I was an only child. And honestly, that to, for that to happen at the beginning of my career, I felt like, oh, no, I made a huge mistake. What am I doing? And Bob put me on an airplane and sent me home to be there when she had a pretty major surgery. At the end of the week, I came back. And I think he was a little bit shocked that that I came back. back. Yeah. <laughs> I came back. Um, but I knew at that point that it was more than just that I was their employee, that they, they genuinely cared about me. Um, they wanted to see me excel and and be happy. And as I built relationships with people in the community, and especially after I became a licensed funeral director, there was a lot of people who thought that I was their daughter. They, they genuinely felt like right. that, that was sure. my role. And um, I was quite honored uh, for people to think I was Bob Deluzio's daughter. Yeah. He is, uh, he is about as well thought of a man in that town as there is. I, I, I picked up on that quickly. They did consider you like their daughter. I mean, I can tell you, they absolutely adored you. They, they, they were proud of what you had accomplished and, they introduced you to people in the community and people just accepted you with open arms. Right. I mean, here this yes. Tennessee girl is in uh, New Hampshire and you accepted like I was on the street. You know how I am. I was talking to people in restaurants and meeting people on the streets and it was, it was the most friendly town I've ever been in in my life. And they did that with you. They just accepted you. Yeah, they did. And, and they didn't, um, you know, as, as time went on, there would be families that um, they had only ever worked with Bob. And um, I guess one of the greatest compliments 
to me would be that he would say, oh, well, you know, I'm so honored that, you know, you've entrusted us with your loved one. And I know I've served your family for many years and I'm, I'm going to let Cassandra take care of your family. And, and I that know is, that that's she'll difficult take care to do. Of yeah. That is amazing. It's, it's just as a old time funeral director and you got a family that's looking to you for her to, for him to give that family to you, to entrust you with that family. That meant he really trusted you to do what you were doing. I, I remember this. You're so good. I had no idea that you, you were blind and you took me on a tour of the funeral. Nobody mentioned that to me. I had no idea. Well, now I am legally blind, so I have some usable vision. So I have, you know, I can see the outline of a room and, and the items in a room, but the fine detail is what is unseen, I guess. Right. Um, and I, I've been legally blind my whole life. There has never been a time in my life when I have been able to see perfectly. So it wasn't something that was taken away from me. Um, and I grew up, my mother is also legally blind. So I grew up in a home where, um, you just learn things a certain way. You learn how to be a lady and growing up in the South, you, you know, those are things that are taught to you very young. Um, and one of those things is hospitality and being warm and welcoming and making people feel at home. And, um, so it was never an option to, to not do those things just because you couldn't see everything everybody else could see. And so, uh, I guess it's just. So I, I remember one time I was there and I'm not sure if it was, I mean, obviously I was there several times and saw you there several times, but I remember you were waiting on a family and it was obvious the reason we had that family, you were had at some point joined the New Hampshire State Blind Association. And this family came over from Vermont because they wanted you to serve them. The guy that had passed away was blind and part of that organization. And I remember you were meeting with that family and I walked down the hall and watched you. You couldn't see me. They couldn't see me, but I watched you with the paper in your hand and you were feeling it. Uh, you were not looking at it, but you're feeling it with your hands and taking all the information that most of us take for granted by looking at it and writing down. I was just blown away by the way you were doing that. Yeah, I, I guess when I learned how to to make arrangements with people, it, it was always told to me that my role as a funeral director, my primary role is to listen. I guess that's one of the things that I took a lot of pride in as a funeral director is being able to build a relationship with a family in just a few hours. It was a gift that I had. I could bond with them and remember things on the day of the funeral that they had told me in a conversation or that they had just mentioned like their mom's favorite color, or, you know, all those things that as funeral directors, we strive to do. But for me, it just came really natural put a little comma there, the people that are listening to this and hear your voice will feel that same warm hearted person. You are gifted, not only with the way you interact with people, but your voice, your compassion, you, you are definitely gifted at what you do. There's no question about it. Another thing that I remember that Bob talked to me about when you got to King, 
you, you really had, had no practice in embalming. Now that's a subject that many people listening to this don't know much about, but it's a scientific procedure and, and you have to be able to see to, to be able to do that effectively. And you learn how to embalm really by feel, right? By, That's right? by picking up the arteries and stuff that we have to do. It's like a surgery, but you were doing it by feel. Yep. And there's no, there's no textbook. Uh, you know, we talked about it a little bit in mortuary school, the importance of being able to do what we do, not by sight. But um, there's no lesson on non-visual techniques of embalming. And so I basically had to teach myself that I had to have all the hours and all the tears shed imagine. <laughs> um, trying to figure out how to do it. And, um, and there were so many people that told me, oh, you'll make an excellent funeral director. You'll be an excellent, you know, professional, but I don't think you'll ever be an embalmer. <laughs> and uh, I laugh at that now because that's all I do. Uh, <laughs> That's what I understood. So you, where you're working now in Tennessee, you went back home. We'll hear that part of the story, but, but you're, you're doing a lot of embalming, right? Only embalming. Yeah. Oh, really? So I, I know Bob worked with you in the, in the prep room as well, right? He did. He did. And he, there were people, his colleagues, his peers in the business were like, you, you have this young woman who works for you and, and she's blind. And, are you sure, Bob? Like, are you really sure? And, and he's like, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. And just so people will know, this is a small town funeral home. And it's not when she, it's not like you got a lot of license in bombers. He needed somebody to do both or it wasn't like there was other people to do it. So that's the, the, the quandary he was in is that yeah. he had to have somebody to do it. And my goodness, you turned out to be able to do it well. And I think that was as Bob was as proud of that as he was the way you interacted with, with, with families. So tell us a little bit. And I, I know that, that you had the, you, you lived across the street from the funeral home where also the ambulance service was located. And I remember that you, you build a relationship with the, with the ambulance crew and you even cook Thanksgiving dinner for them every year. Right. That's right. So um, tell me how that started. Well, of course the ambulance guys that, that worked uh, for the Deluzios, uh, they were as intrigued by this Southern young woman who came up there to live as well, because I didn't have any family there except for the Deluzios. I, I built a lot of strong relationships with them and a lot of them became like brothers to me um, because most of them were, or men. And so when the crews would cook dinner, cause they all cooked dinner, um, at night we would all chip in and they'd invite me, you know, to come over and eat with them. And so I would, I would bring different dishes and, um, and of course they were always intrigued by the Southern, uh, Southern meals, like chicken and dumplings and all the things that, uh, I had grown up making. Uh, so the first Thanksgiving, um, I said, well, why don't, why don't we cook Thanksgiving dinner? So, they all had to work. It was a busy day for the ambulance. And so I ended up cooking the Thanksgiving dinner and it just became tradition. And it went on for a long time until pretty much until I had a family of my own. 
you know, they, they loved it. They, we had chicken and dressing and I remember, I remember, I mean, I turkey. was just amazed at what all you were doing in that town and cooking Thanksgiving dinner for that crowd. Uh, it just, again, it just, uh, blew me away. I, I mentioned that I don't think Bob ever even factored in the fact that you would bring business to his funeral home that he would have never gotten, uh, if you were not there because the relationships you built through the blind association, I know you began speaking at those conferences. I know, I remember at least one time you went to Orlando or somewhere you flew down to speak to a convention, right? I did. I got to tell my story in front of 3000 people at the national federation of the blind convention. And, um, and many times since then, I've had an opportunity to tell the story. I'm always uh, humbled because it wasn't when I was doing the work. I knew that it was a pioneer effort that, that there were not other young women who were legally blind, who were pursuing degrees in, in mortuary science and licensure. And so I knew that in some way it would be something that would need to be recorded um, in the history of the blind. So speaking and being able to tell the story is, is always uh, an awesome uh, adventure, but I'm not a public speaker. And so to stand in front of 3000 people and tell that story I was terrified and I, just I can't like, imagine you being terrified about anything. <laughs> like, what am I going to say? How am I going to start this talk? And so I, I went to what I knew. I went to things I knew that would intrigue them and keep them interested and uh, telling the story. You know, sometimes I think about it. I think if I hadn't done it, if I had, if I'd walked away, I would have missed out on, on a whole lifetime of of being being able to to do what I do. Yeah. I can't wow. imagine doing anything else. Well, it's incredible. I have to ask you, what did you think? And here you were in New Hampshire, and now this guy from tall, white-headed guy from Georgia walks in that funeral home. What was your impression that day? <laughs> I can only imagine. I was, I was very interested to meet you. I'd, I'd heard um, that you were coming, and I knew that you um, were someone who liked to. Yeah, I knew you had a, a blog, and you you talked about funeral service from a different perspective. I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. He he's from the south. We must have something in common. Uh, <laughs> um. So I thought, you know, this, this will be, this will be nice. And, and yet I didn't feel intimidated, um, which I, I don't know how I didn't feel intimidated because I wasn't anyone, you know, special. I was, I was just there doing my job. And I just remember after you had gone, I was like, I really hope I didn't, you know, take up too much of his time. <laughs> There's a lot of important things going on. And trust me, you had my undivided attention and I was uh, taking up your time. You were not taking up my time. I could promise you that. So when I met you, you were Cassandra McNabb. 
Yes, and I uh, after, you know, my area of responsibility changed, uh, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I ran into Bob and Linda one time at the Atlanta airport in the Delta room, just uh, out of the clear blue after I had moved on to another area of responsibility, but uh, couldn't believe I ran into them. What great people. What, and we talked about you, but what great people they are. But at some point, you you started dating your future husband. And I think, if I remember right, Jamie, he was from Tennessee, right? That's right. So how did you get that going? Well, it's kind of it's kind of funny. We met when we were in the sixth grade. So we both came from a small town in West Tennessee and we were really good friends in middle school. And then my family's home was destroyed by a tornado when I was in the eighth grade, which happens a lot <laughs> in the south. And we uh, we had to move my family moved to another town and so right before my senior year we moved back to Jackson. Jamie and I kind of rekindled our friendship. And after I graduated from high school, um, of course, you know, Mab and McKinney, they're not too far apart. In fact, we sat right beside each other at graduation. Right. Both M's, um, right? Yep. And so we started dating right after high school. And of course, as young people, your your paths take you different places and and you wonder, oh do I really love them? Because, you know, uh, we're, we're really young and we have our whole lives ahead of us. And so as time went on, we we started talking again and then he, we dated for a couple of years and then he asked me to marry him and then he moved to New Hampshire. How long did he live in New Hampshire before you guys moved back? Uh, seven years. Oh, wow. So he, I, I didn't realize it was that long. So that's an incredible story. Now you've got two kids and what, what's their names and ages, Cassandra? So the oldest is Robert and he is six and um, the youngest is Timothy and he's three and a half. What a wonderful, wonderful story that you were completely took a shot. You took a chance. You went to another part of the world, having no idea if you could really succeed in what you were facing. You, you hit it off. You did a superb job there. You ended up even getting your best friend who became your husband to come to New Hampshire and you got married and had a family. And now you've moved back to Tennessee now, right? That's right. And tell me, I bet that was hard to leave Bob and Linda, wasn't it? It was, it, it was, um, the decision to leave was a hundred times harder than the decision to go. Well, I bet. You know, there comes a point in your life when your parents are getting older. Uh, we're blessed. My grandparents are still living. I wanted my boys to to know their family, their cousins, and to have those opportunities. But again, I wasn't I wasn't looking for a way out of New Hampshire. I had had started back to the prayer right. you know lord you you know where we are you know our situation you know the desire of our heart is to be closer to our family my grandmother's sister had passed away they she passed away here in jackson and so i called a friend and that was linda yarbrough they own a mortuary service here in jackson 
I was calling her to find out if they might be able to help our family with my, my great aunt. By the end of that conversation, Linda had offered me a job. <laughs> so the, so and, the door uh, just opened up for you. They did. She said, um, have you ever wanted to come home? And that's how she said it. <laughs> and that's said, what you've been praying about, right? And that's right. I, I wanted, I wanted to come home. Now, when I graduated from high school, I, I swore that I would never, never come back, back to this town. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> so I guess the Lord has a sense of humor. Wow. But <laughs> so that's, I mean, what an amazing story. What an amazing story. What has been your greatest frustration in, in this whole story for you? I don't know. I think the hardest thing for me is the perceptions uh, that, that people have when when they think about funeral service, they think about, you know, the old time stories, the old time way of the business. Right. And um, a lot's changed in 20 years. Hasn't it? I, a long time ago, when I first started in the business, I, I used to worry, you know, because when you drive to the cemetery and the procession, the funeral director gets out of the hearse and, opens the door for the family. I never, I never understood why it mattered what side of the hearse they got out of. I still don't understand, but there's a, you know, there's a, a lot of perception that says that the funeral director has to be able to do everything. So I strive every day to change that perception. Um, like you said earlier, I could do just about anything. I've I've been an embalmer for a long time and I've seen my fair share of difficult cases to have to handle. Imagine. And I've walked families down journey, you know, down paths that no person should ever have to walk down. Yeah, there's no doubt you have. So what if one day you'll be able to tell your children when they get older. Oh, they will be figuring it out. What what's your greatest victory? What what is your what is your life story here? Well, I guess um, my life. If if I have been able to prove one thing in my life, it's that if you truly believe in something in your heart, and you put a hundred and fifty percent of yourself into it, and you strive for the very best don't just halfway do it you give it all of who you are and then the dreams and the goals and the aspirations that you have for yourself can come true wow so two more questions one is there are people that will listen to this that may have some kind of disability that did not do what you just said. And maybe they're hovered in the corner a little bit and thinking they can't do much more than they think they can do. What What's your message to them? I guess um, the limitations that we set for ourselves are the ones that limit us the most. If we truly believe that we can do something, 
then it takes more effort for people to prove that we can't than to prove that, you know, to make it where we can't. Um, if, if you strive for what you truly want and set realistic goals, have people that support you, have people that, that champion you, that's one of the most important things is surrounding yourself with people who support you. Um, everybody should have a Bob Deluzio in their fan club. And or Steve Tidwell. Yeah. That's right. And yet Bob Deluzio's and Steve Tidwell's are are becoming few, <laughs> fewer and fewer because that generation of of excellence in funeral service is um, you know the greatest generation. Right. And so now it comes to, to those of us in this generation to, to bring people up into it and say. In a, in a profession that is changing, like you said, every day, it, it will never be like it was. And boy, it's in good hands with people like you. I can tell you that. I feel pretty, pretty like not pretty, but very good about that. The other thing that I mentioned at the beginning, and I vividly remember and I think I was traveling with Mike Martell that day. And I remember complaining to him as we were driving in the Keen or on the trip over that I was complaining that I hadn't had enough sleep. And I remember walking in there and realizing and hearing your story and finally figuring out what was going on and asking you a million questions. I'm sure <laughs> I was thinking, what in the heck am I complaining about? And I, I, I can't help but wonder what somebody like you who has overcome so much to be successful, how does it impact you when, when people that have seemingly no limitations are complaining and, and fussing about everything that comes up? I, I just wonder what, what you think about that. Well, I guess going back to what I said before, I never thought of what I was doing as something extraordinary. I just knew that I got up every day and went to work and did what I felt like in my heart I was supposed to be doing. So I guess when I hear other people who, who don't have the same limitations, it's kind of like this. When I have friends and uh, their car has to go in the shop because it won't run or, you know, something's up and, I'll say, oh, I just don't know what I'm going to do without having a car for a few days. And I think, oh, I just don't know what I would do if I could get in the car and go where I want to go. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I, I guess those, those simple things, I don't let, I don't, I don't feel sorry for myself because I know that uh, I have the ability to go and do whatever I'd like to do. I have, I have worked on that independence my whole life, but I guess sometimes I wish that, um, people could walk in my shoes for just a little bit. I can imagine. Um, I can't imagine. <laughs> and not, I can only I'm imagine, not but I, I, I can't put myself in your shoes, but I can imagine that that would have to come across your mind for what you've done. I, I want to tell you, and I, I really mean this, 
I have met a lot of people in my life. And as you know, I've traveled all over the country. I've met a lot of people in this profession. I mean, some of the finest people that I've in the world are in this profession. I've never met anybody that inspired me more than you. And I, it's just the way that you, you said it, you don't feel sorry for yourself. It was obvious here. I was quote the boss coming in and <laughs> you, you never even mentioned that you had limitations on your site. Uh, you, you certainly didn't feel sorry for yourself. And all of that is just inspiring. And as I, uh, I have a feeling that a lot of people in the funeral business will end up hearing this. And although we just, I think you're going to be the ninth episode that I've got out. People need to hear this story and people will be inspired by what you're doing. You, you made a difference. Your career is not close to being over. If that's what you want. I know you're raising kids and you went home and I'm not even sure what it is that your next step is, but I know you're very good at what you do. I've, I'm just thankful and honored that I got to meet you. Ugh. Everybody's path crosses for a reason. And uh, I genuinely believe that um, throughout this whole talk, we've had the, the, uh, the power of prayer and the work that God calls us to do and the people he puts in our lives. I truly believe that no one comes into our lives by, you know, by mistake. And so that day when you came into that, into Foley Funeral Home and we met, I, I believe that that was, that was supposed to happen. Yeah. So yeah. just for the record, I believe that too, with all my heart, I believe it. Cassandra, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, God bless you. I want to stay in touch with you. She, thank you for, for joining us here today. You have blessed a lot of people. I bet you that. Thank you, dear. Oh, thank you. Viewing life from a hearse, it could be worse. Laugh, think, and cry with the country undertaker.